My last project before completing my seminary education was to do a comprehensive study on the biblical perspective of cremation. Now, the very nature of this study forced me to examine various views of death and discover how different people face death. And one of the more interesting things that I discovered was that in the 1800s, some people began to favor cremation over burial because they were frightened at the thought of being buried alive. But fear of being buried alive, it isn't the only thing that people fear about death. So many people dread the oncoming of death. In the book of Job, death is referred to as the king of terrors, and that's exactly what it is for many people. They are just horrified at death because it is to them the great unknown, and they're just so fearful of the thought of dying. But facing death doesn't have to be a terrifying event because the Bible presents Jesus Christ as the one who not only conquered death by his own resurrection, but who also promises eternal life, which is fellowship with God forever and ever to those who trust Christ alone for their salvation. However, even before his own death and then resurrection, Jesus proved that he had power over death by miraculously raising several individuals from the dead. The New Testament tells us about this. And today, as we resume our study of Luke's gospel, we've come to one of those miraculous power over death miracles. And I read this to you earlier, so I won't read it right now, but it's Luke chapter eight, verses 40 through 56. Now, the passage in Luke, this passage, it's rather unusual in that it contains not one but two miracles, two miracles within a single story, which is unusual. It's sort of a miracle within a miracle. And Luke tells us about the time that Jesus was on his way to heal a young 12-year-old girl who was near death when he took the time to heal a woman who had a very serious health condition. She had a female blood flow problem that had left her not only physically unhealthy, but in addition, she was now a social outcast in her religiously oriented Jewish society because she was considered, according to the Old Testament Mosaic law, ritually unclean. Ritually unclean. But at the same time that Jesus healed this woman, a messenger arrived from the house of the young girl's father, a man by the name of Jairus, announcing that his daughter had died. And so at this point, Jesus just continued walking with Jairus to his home, and he miraculously brought this young girl back to life. And so there is a sense in which we can say that both miracles in this passage are about death. One deals with the physical death of a young girl. The other deals with a woman who, because of her illness, her disease was considered socially dead by those in her community. The one thing that joins both of these individuals together is that the girl who had died and the woman who had experienced really a living death were both without any hope apart from Christ's healing touch. No hope at all. You see, apart from Jesus, there was absolutely nothing that anyone could do for either of these ladies. The girl was dead. She was already being mourned. And the woman was beyond any known medical help. We're told that she had spent all of her money on physicians for 12 years, interestingly enough, the same number of years that the girl was concerning her age. But for 12 years, she had spent all of her money on doctors looking for help and uh, no one was able to cure her problem. So both of these individuals, in both of the cases, the dead young girl and the socially dead ill woman, woman, uh, they're both hopeless without Christ. And, And what Luke does is he weaves them into one story that presents Jesus as the hope of the hopeless. Because folks, that's really what our Lord is. He is the hope of the hopeless. That's great news for us, great news, because like these two hopeless individuals, we have absolutely no hope apart from Jesus, no hope at all, because without his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross, we have no hope of escaping God's judgment after death, and that's exactly what the New Testament tells us. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, 
that all of us were born into this world dead in our sins and trespasses. And then he goes on to say, we were without hope, having no hope in this world. Without Christ, no hope in this world. Dead and hopeless. And just as our Lord physically touched these two ladies and gave them back their lives, so we are in desperate need for him to touch our lives by delivering us from the eternal wrath of God which is what hell is. Now, in keeping with the theme of this section, which is Luke chapter 8, and it is about Christ's divine authority to do miracles. You'll recall that the first miracle that Luke told us about was Christ's authority over nature as he calmed a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. And then he told us about Christ's authority over Satan and demons as he cast out an army of evil spirits from a man possessed by them. And now Luke tells us about Christ's authority over disease and death as he brings healing to these two hopeless ladies. However, I want you to know that there's more to this story than simply a general statement about Christ's power over disease and death. I mean, that's certainly here, that's part of it. But this is one of those great passages in the Bible in which we get a close-up look into the heart of Christ as we see not only what he did, but we also see the way that Jesus ministered with such deep sensitivity, such incredible thoughtfulness to these desperate individuals. So not only is his power on display in this passage, in these verses, but we also see such great qualities of his, like his gentleness his compassion, his mercy, his accessibility, his lack of showing favoritism as he ministered to these hurting individuals. And as we see these wonderful characteristics of Christ, it should impact all of us. How? Well, we should find ourselves being moved to love him more deeply than ever, knowing what he's like, knowing how wonderful he is. Our hearts should be drawn to him to love him more than ever. We should be encouraged to trust him more with our lives when we see not only his power, but his kindness. And we should be motivated, frankly, to be more like him in the way that we conduct our lives, the way we treat people. And so as we begin to explore this passage, which as I've already mentioned, includes two miracles, one miracle sandwiched around another miracle, we see that Luke presents his material, not in two parts, actually in three parts. And the reason he did this and did it this way is because there are actually three main characters in the passage. And they're all hopeless. They're all in tremendous need of Christ's help. In the first part of the passage, we see Jesus being asked by the young girl's anxious father to heal his dying daughter. Then in the second part of the story, the Lord is on the way to the girl's house when he stops to heal this distressed woman who had exhausted, as we said, all human effort in getting medical help for her condition. In the third and final part of the passage, we see him at the house of the young girl who by this time has died, but the Lord miraculously restores her to life. And so we begin by looking at the first part of the passage where we see how Jesus, the hope of the hopeless, ministered to a desperate father. We break in at verse 40. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. Now the passage begins by Luke, as he does so often, setting the the scene for us. And he does this by telling us that Jesus has just returned to the town. He doesn't mention the town of Capernaum, but that's where the Lord came back to because that's where he had left. He's returned now to Capernaum from his visit to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, the district of the Gerasenes, where he had miraculously cast out a multitude of demons from a man. And now that he's returned, the people were told welcomed him back because they've been waiting for him. And no doubt, they were waiting for him, hoping that he would do more healing of them and their loved ones. Now Mark, in his gospel narrative of this same incident, says that upon the Lord's arrival, a great multitude gathered about him. And one of those individuals in this great multitude, this great crowd of people, was a man with a desperate need. And Luke introduces this man to us in verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. Now Luke tells us that a man by the name of Jairus came and he knelt before Jesus and he began to plead with the Lord to come to his house. And, and what's so interesting 
about this is that this man was one of the official rulers, one of the leaders of the local synagogue in Capernaum. He, along with a few other men from his town, served as leaders in the synagogue, which meant that they were responsible for supervising the worship services as well as maintaining the general operations of the synagogue. Now, the fact that Jairus was a synagogue official meant that he was a very high-ranking man in the Jewish religious community, the same Jewish religious community that was beginning to rise up in opposition to Jesus. The Pharisees had already accused the Lord of committing blasphemy when he forgave the sins of a paralyzed man, and they criticized him because he feasted with tax collectors and sinners, implying that he had the same type of loose morals as they had. Now, Jairus, as a leader in the Jewish community, had to be very much aware of the growing opposition of his peers towards Christ. For all we know, now scripture doesn't say this, but for all we know, it's possible that Jairus may have even been a Pharisee himself. But regardless of what his fellow religious leaders thought of Jesus, it did not prevent him from approaching Christ for his help. And why? Well, because he was so desperate, that's why. And so as Luke continues unfolding the story, he tells us that the reason Jairus, out of desperation, came to Jesus, bowed down before him, requesting that he immediately come with him to his house. Verse 42 begins this way. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. Now here we learn that Jairus had a young daughter, And the implication is this was his only child, and she was about 12 years old, and she was dying, meaning that she was on the verge of death. And that's why he was pleading with the Lord to come to his house. He was a desperate man, entreating Christ to heal his daughter before it was just too late, and she died. Now, no doubt, Jairus, living in the town of Capernaum, which was the headquarters of Jesus in the Galilee area, had witnessed Christ healing many people of their diseases. I mean, you couldn't live there without knowing this, and therefore he had faith in Jesus to heal his daughter. And regardless of what his fellow religious leaders, his peers, thought about Jesus, he decided to ask the Lord for his help. His precious little girl was dying, and he knew of nowhere else to turn but to Jesus. His religious traditions, his colleagues, they couldn't help him. All known medical help had failed to bring a remedy, and so out of deep desperation, with no one else to turn to, Jairus turns to the only one who offers any hope for the life of his daughter. Now, folks, there's an important principle for us to learn from Jairus, and it's this. Often the great trials, the great crises, the great tragedies, the great difficulties, pains in life that we face, often they are sent by God and used by Him to show us that we have a great personal need for Jesus Christ. Now, at first... We may not see that our primary need is for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're an unbeliever, you don't usually see that. But so often God will use some situation that has absolutely no human solution for the purpose of driving us to seek Christ for his help. And then only later, only later do we take it a step further and come to the realization as the Holy Spirit enlightens us that our true and our greatest need is for salvation from our sin. As someone so wisely put it, they said, despair is commonly the prelude to grace. I know that was certainly true in my life when the Lord was dealing with me. I went through a very, very difficult time when I was a freshman at the University of South Florida, and I was in such a desperate state. I didn't know who else to turn to, and I literally said one night, Jesus, if you're real, help me. I don't think I was saved at that point. I didn't understand the cross, but the Lord honored that and eventually drew me to himself. James Boyce explains about this. He explains the significance of what Jairus did and how he serves as a good example for us in turning to Christ during a seemingly hopeless situation. Boyce wrote this. He said, 
What made Jairus appeal to a man most of his peers rejected? No doubt desperation. His daughter was dying or was already dead, and he had nowhere else to turn. Desperation may not have the best of motives, but it drove him to Jesus, and that was all that really mattered. It has been the case for many people. They may not have come to Jesus for any other reason, but that something in their lives made them desperate. So they came to Jesus and discovered that he did not scorn them for their inadequate or poor motives, but met their needs instead. Amen. Listen, you may be in the same kind of situation that drove this man Jairus to Jesus. You have a need that has no human solution as well. If you're in that situation, then turn to Christ because he's the only one who can help you. He who has the power to heal the sick, calm the seas, raise people from the dead, and cast out demons certainly has the power to take care of your problem, whatever that problem may be. And what you'll find in turning to him is that he is available and he is willing to help you. And as you become more acquainted with Christ and with the Bible, his word, you will come to understand that your greatest need is for salvation from your sins. And then you just need to come to him for God's forgiveness and he'll give it. And so having told us that Jairus approached Christ requesting him to come to his house to bring healing to his daughter, Luke now proceeds to tell us how Jesus responded to this request. The man asked him, how did the Lord respond? Verse 42 goes on to say, but as he went, but as he went. Now Matthew in his account of once again the same incident tells us that Jesus got up and began to follow him and so did his disciples. Now the fact that Jesus immediately began to follow Jairus to his home, it may not seem significant. You can read it and go, well, yeah, of course. But it is significant. In fact, this is an amazing statement. I'll tell you why. Because it reveals that Jesus immediately sprang into action. There's no mention of any conversation, discussion. Jesus didn't look at his Israeli-made watch and say, I'm, I'm too busy, I'll see you a little later. Once Jesus heard of this desperate father's need, he just left. He stopped what he was doing in order to minister to this man who was in agony. He was in sheer anguish over his dying daughter. And what this reveals, folks, is the remarkable compassion and the remarkable interest that Jesus has in individuals. It isn't just the multitudes that our Lord ministered to. It's not just the crowds that he was interested in, but it's people, individuals. That's who he was concerned about, especially hurting individuals like this distraught father and people like us. No matter how busy Jesus was with all kinds of demands that were made upon him by the multitudes of people who flocked to him, he just wasn't too busy to help this poor, worried father and his dying daughter. And this is precisely the way the Lord is with you, the way he is with me. Think about this. He who is the creator and runs the universe, upholds the universe, pays attention to individuals like us. David said in the Psalms, what is man that you are mindful of him? What a great question. Who am I that you would pay attention to me? But that's the way he is. He hears our cries when we're aching and he pays attention to us as he demonstrates his love and compassion. Why? Because he is the hope of the hopeless. And he will be there for you just as he was for Jairus. But it wasn't only a desperate father that Jesus ministered to. As Luke continues his narrative, he tells us that Jesus also proved himself to be the hope of the hopeless in the case of a distressed woman. Verse 42 continues, but as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. So Luke says that when Jesus set off immediately to go to the home of Jairus, there were many people pressing against him. In other words, there was a large crowd of people who went along with Jesus and Jairus, no doubt hoping to see a miracle. And what this meant was that it slowed down the progress of Jesus and Jairus as they were just trying to make their way through the crowd on their way to the home of the synagogue official. Now imagine if it were you, imagine the anxiety filling the heart of Jairus because with his daughter on the verge of death, every moment counted. And then, I mean, you're slowed down, but then the unimaginable happened. The slow progress they were making came to a sudden halt. 
because in that crowd of people was a woman who also had a great need for Christ's healing touch. And as Luke continues, he tells us about her. Verses 43 and 44. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Now Luke tells us that in the crowd of people pressing against Jesus was a woman who was suffering from a bleeding problem. For 12 years she had this and that no physician was able to bring healing to her. And we're not told the specific cause of her bleeding. Her bleeding was probably caused by a tumor or some kind of disease of the uterus. And not only would this continual bleeding have been a cause for personal embarrassment to her, but as I told you, in the Jewish world back then, it made her a social outcast. You see, according to Leviticus 15, verse 19, this constant bleeding put her in the category, as I told you, of being ritually unclean, which meant that she was excluded from participating in her synagogue. She was prohibited from having any contact, physical contact with others, because to touch her or be touched by her made everybody else ritually unclean, contaminated. One Bible teacher explained the horrible isolation this woman must have endured. He said this, people could not come into contact with a menstruating woman without being made unclean by that contact. In fact, they could not even lie on a bed where she had lain or sit on a chair where she had sat. No one could touch her and she was not allowed to touch other people. Sadly, her bleeding would have destroyed any chances for marriage or if she were married, it would have precluded all sexual relations with her husband. She must have been very, very lonely. No doubt she was. And this went on for 12 years. What a sad life this woman was forced to live. But in addition to her social isolation, Mark, in his account of this incident, tells us that she was financially broke. She was out of money. He writes, she had endured much at the hands of many physicians that had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. In other words, in the 12 years of looking for a cure for this disorder, she had spent all her money on doctors and not one of them was able to help her and she wasn't any better. In fact, she was worse and now she had no more money to spend. It's no wonder that this woman had grown worse because ancient medical treatment could be, shall I say, weird, bizarre, as well as damaging. William Lane, writing in his commentary on Mark, states how medical practitioners, doctors in the ancient world treated women who had the condition that this woman had. By the way, don't go to any doctor who prescribes this stuff. One remedy, he said, consisted of drinking a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. Another treatment consisted of a dose of Persian onions cooked in wine administered with the summons arise out of your flow of blood. Other physicians prescribed sudden shock or the carrying of the ash of an ostrich's egg in a certain cloth. Listen, no wonder this woman was in such great distress. And with nowhere else to turn, she quietly moves amongst the crowd following Jesus, trying not to draw any attention to herself because if the people realized that she was mingling and jostling with them in the crowd, they would have been very angry because she would have been spiritually contaminating them with her uncleanness. And so Luke says that she came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe, meaning the tassels of his outer robe, believing that just this contact with the fringes of his clothing would bring her healing. The background of this, the tassels, the fringe, is Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 41. It tells us that Jewish men were to put tassels on the fringes of their outer robes as a visual reminder to obey God's commandments. Now, obviously, Jesus didn't need a visual reminder to obey God. He was perfectly obedient. But out of obedience to the Mosaic law, because our Lord was under the Mosaic law, he wore a robe with these tassels like every Jewish man of his day. Now, the way this robe was worn so that the tassels were accessible to this woman is explained by Bible teacher G. Campbell Morgan. I found this to be very helpful. He said this, 
The eastern robe was put on so that one end being flung over the shoulder, one end of the tassels was always upon the back of the wearer as he walked along. So what he's saying to us, it would have been accessible to her. It was put over his shoulder, hanging off his back. And so coming up behind Jesus, we read that this woman then touched the fringe of his cloak. However, the Greek word that's translated touched means far more than she merely made contact with the material on his robes if she just lightly tapped it. That's not the case. The word means that she grabbed hold of it. She clutched at these tassels. She grasped them out of desperation, believing that if she did this, then she would be healed of her horrible bleeding. Now, it's very likely, very likely that one reason that she touched his garments was because like many people of that day, she superstitiously believed that sometimes touching the garments of a godly person could bring healing. But it wasn't all superstition. If it was at all, it wasn't all of it because there was also an element of faith to what she did. And we know that because Mark in his gospel account of this incident says that after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. In other words, meaning that after hearing such wonderful reports that Jesus had healed others, she believed that he could heal her too. And he did. He did because we read immediately her hemorrhage stopped. The bleeding just stopped abruptly. Now apparently this woman thought that with all the people pressing against Christ that she could momentarily just grab hold of his garment unnoticed, be healed, and just slip away quietly in the crowd. But Jesus didn't let that happen. And there's a reason. And we'll see that as we proceed. Verses 45 and 46. And Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. Now Luke tells us that Jesus, having felt this woman grab the tassel of his robe off of his back, asked, who touched me? Now, of course, Jesus being God, he knew who touched him. He simply asked this question so that the woman would have to publicly reveal herself, and we'll see why soon. But in response to our Lord's question, who touched me, Peter spoke up, and Peter's always speaking up, and sadly, Peter actually, this is a little bit of a rebuke. It's sad that Peter always felt compelled to rebuke the Lord. Shame on him, he knows better now. But Peter spoke up and he said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. In other words, Lord, how are we to know who touched you? All these people are bumping into you and touching you. So why are you asking who touched you? Everyone's touching you. How are we supposed to know, Lord? But Jesus wasn't referring to the incidental bumping and pushing that had come from the the people crowding into him. He knew the difference between that and the intentional grabbing of the tassels of his robe. That's what he's talking about. He knew that someone in the crowd had grabbed hold of his tassels because as Luke tells it, he said, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. In other words, he knew that power had gone forth from his physical body to bring miraculous healing to this woman. And what that tells us is that every time Jesus healed someone or every time he did something miraculously, he personally felt it. And he was fully aware that divine power had left him. We don't often think about that, but that's what the passage is saying. And concerning this power going forth from him, theologian R.C. Sproul said this. He said, this statement tells us something about Jesus. When Jesus used his power to redeem people from whatever condition they were in, It was costly for him. When he calmed the storm, when he healed the man of a legion of demons, he was drained of the power. Now, as he was on his way to deal with the dying daughter of Jairus, he felt the power go out of him again. He understood that the departure of strength from his body occurred when his redeeming power was being used in a saving way. And so, having asked the question, who touched him, this woman realizes that she's not going to escape being unnoticed She thought that she could just slip back quietly into the crowd without anyone knowing what she did. But by asking who touched him, Jesus made sure that this wasn't going to happen. And so we read in verse 47 these words. When the woman saw 
that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now, this statement by Luke is rather self-explanatory. I'll just briefly comment on it. He tells us, knowing that she could not escape being noticed, she came trembling and fell down before Jesus and admitted that she was the one who touched him and why she did this and that upon touching the tassels of his robe, she declared to all that she had been immediately healed. And upon hearing this, Luke tells us what Jesus said in response to this woman's admission. Verse 48, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now folks, this is a statement that is absolutely packed with a number of significant truths that reveal our Lord's kindness and compassion in the way he dealt with hurting people. For example, the first thing we notice here is that Jesus referred to this woman as daughter. This is the only statement in the entire New Testament where Jesus ever called someone daughter. And it reveals a precious tenderness, a gentleness in the way that Jesus treated her. And keep in mind who this woman was. This woman wasn't used to being treated well or spoken to kindly. She was ostracized in that society, accustomed to being shunned by everybody, mistreated by others. But Jesus didn't shun her. He spoke to her using a word that conveyed tenderness and warmth and, and concern as a loving father would speak to a daughter. And not only did he speak to her in a caring manner, the fact that he drew attention to her showed how much he cared. So let me explain. Remember, this woman didn't want anyone knowing about her presence in the crowd. She wanted to go unnoticed, be healed, and then quietly just leave. So one might wonder, if that's the case, then why did Jesus intentionally draw attention to her by publicly announcing that he had healed her? Did he want to embarrass her? No, of course not. He did it because, note this, it was in her best interest for everyone to know that she was now no longer ritually unclean. So by publicly drawing attention to this healing, Jesus was really, really setting this woman free from the stigma that was attached to her condition. This is an act of kindness and compassion. In other words, he was announcing for all to her that she is no longer banned. She's no longer banned from the synagogue, no longer banned from visiting people, no longer banned from the normal social contacts of daily life. Far from embarrassing her, our Lord was being kind. He was being incredibly thoughtful and letting everyone know that she is officially cured of her ailment. She's now back in society. And notice that Jesus told her that it was her faith that made her well. And that's very interesting because it would appear that while she had faith in Jesus to heal her, her faith was of a very immature nature, somewhat ignorant faith because as I've already said, she probably had superstition mixed in with her faith, kind of like um, a little magic here. If I just touch his clothing, I'll be healed. But instead of jumping all over her, instead of correcting her by giving her a theological lesson on biblical faith, Jesus just commended her for believing in him. Folks, that ought to greatly encourage us because it indicates that Jesus responds to our faith even when that faith is not perfect, even when it hasn't reached a point of clear theological understanding. And that's so helpful for us to know because that's the way all of us begin the journey of faith as spiritual infants with infantile faith that needs to mature, but it needs to start somewhere. I love the way Kent Hughes explains beginning faith, and that's what this is, beginning faith. He said, beginning faith is often uninformed faith and mixed with errors and misconceptions about, for example, Christ's person, the Trinity, the atonement, grace works, or the scriptures. But foggy understandings are often the true beginning of an authentic, informed trust in God. We can take courage in the fact that we do not have to have everything figured out doctrinally in order to possess a faith that pleases God. He said, certainly we must believe that Christ is God and that he died for our sins. We must rest everything on that. But true faith is not the sole property of the spiritually elite or those who have the most Christian education. He's absolutely right. Absolutely right. 
But there's still one more significant truth that we need to note about our Lord's kindness in the way he ministered and treated this dear hurting woman. It's this, notice that Jesus didn't turn her away because he was on a mission with an important synagogue official, an important man in the community, and he didn't have time to deal with this woman of low social status? No, not at all. Remember, her healing took place while Jesus was in the process of walking to the home of Jairus to restore his daughter back to life. This woman was basically an interruption in an important mission he was on. But regardless of the high reputation of Jairus in the community, when this distressed woman, this outcast woman, when she needed his help, Jesus showed no partiality by treating Jairus better than her. Why? Because Christ being God is no respecter of persons. That's the way God is. He never treats anyone better because of their financial status, their clout in the community, their ethnic or religious background, their education, their position in life, or any of that stuff. And that's exactly the way we have to be. We have to follow Christ so that we minister to all in need regardless of who they are. That's the way his church is to be. Jesus will always respond to the cry of a hopeless heart that reaches out to him in faith. And that's exactly what he did with this distressed, helpless woman. He once again proves to be the hope of the hopeless. This woman came to Christ. She was distraught, distressed, chronically ill, socially shunned, without any more resources to seek medical attention. And she left him encouraged, healed, and as one who is now welcomed back into the Jewish community, and all because she believed in Jesus. And if you find yourself in a hopeless condition, he's the one you want to turn to. He's the one you want to turn to. Even if your faith is weak, and it's a stumbling kind of faith, and you're not even sure how to pray to him, just move towards him with your problem. I told you, my simple prayer many, many years ago was, Jesus, if you're real, help me. I didn't even know if he was real. I said, Jesus, if you're real, help me. That's all you can do, then do it. He will help you, and he'll enlighten you and draw you to himself. Let him minister to you as he develops your faith and matures it and shows you who he really is. And so we see Jesus as the hope of the hopeless by his ministry to a desperate father and then a distressed woman. But the third hopeless individual that Christ touched that day was a dead girl. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Luke tells us that while Jesus was still speaking to this newly healed woman, someone from the synagogue leader's house, someone from the house of Jairus, perhaps a relative, perhaps a, a friend of Jairus, broke through the crowd to deliver the bad news. And without much tact or sensitivity, you might add, telling Jairus, that his daughter had died, so he no longer needed to trouble the rabbi, to trouble Jesus anymore. So whoever this tactless messenger was, he obviously didn't believe that Jesus had the power to do anything to raise Jairus' daughter back to life. But Jesus, out of his heart of mercy and compassion, he just ignores this messenger of doom, this Debbie Downer, and immediately he seeks to counsel Jairus, who no doubt at this point was heartbroken and in anguish hearing that his daughter had just died. And so the Lord says this to Jairus in verse 50, but when Jesus heard this, he answered him, do not be afraid any longer, only believe and she'll be made well. Jesus told Jairus that in spite of hearing about the death of his daughter, he did not need to be afraid. Instead, he told Jairus that he needed to believe that he could restore his daughter back to life. And Jairus did believe. Otherwise, he and Jesus would not have continued walking to his home. But they did walk. They did continue. And as Luke continues, he tells us what happened when they arrived at the house of Jairus. Verses 51 and 52. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother, apparently meaning entering the room where the daughter was. Now, there were weeping. They were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, stop weeping for she has not died but is asleep. 
Now, Matthew, in his accounts of this incident, says that when Jesus arrived at the home of Jairus, flute players and a crowd of people were already in the house. Now, you might wonder, what were flute players doing there? This wasn't a party. This was a time of sadness. The girl has died. Well, unlike the way funerals are usually carried out in our culture, they're usually quiet and somber. If there's any music, it's usually soothing and calming. But in Christ's day, Jewish funerals were noisy and they were loud as friends, relatives, as well as professional mourners who were hired. They wailed with deep shrieks of grief while musicians who also were hired played loud, disturbing music that expressed the anguish of one's heart. And that's exactly what Jesus encountered when he entered the home of Jairus. Mark says that when he came to the house of the synagogue official, he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. But upon seeing this, Luke says that Jesus did not allow anyone to enter the house with him. As I said, apparently meaning the room in the house where the girl was, except three of his disciples, Peter, John, and James, as well as the girl's parents. And he abruptly put a stop to this funeral by telling everyone to just stop weeping and lamenting because he said the girl wasn't dead, but only asleep. Now, by using the term sleep, Jesus wasn't saying that the girl was only in a coma or that she was taking a nap. He knew that she had died, literally died, But he had said she was sleeping in the sense that she would be awakened to live again. Sleep is often used in the New Testament as a metaphor to refer to death because it communicates that it's only temporary. Like we sleep and we wake up. Death is like that. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying about this deceased young girl. She wasn't dead in the sense of being dead and gone forever. She was dead in the sense that she needed to be awakened. And that's exactly what he intended to do. Jesus intended to awaken her back to life. But none of the people at this girl's funeral took him seriously because verse 53 says, and they began laughing at him knowing that she had died. Everyone in the house knew that she had died. And that's why they laughed at Jesus when he said that she's only sleeping. Now, this wasn't a light laughter. This was a, an arrogant and a mocking Laughter, as if the Lord was so foolish and didn't know what he was talking about. I find it very interesting, though, that these people who were supposedly wailing and in mourning could so quickly turn off the tears and laugh. It reveals that their sorrow wasn't genuine at all. They were just paid to do that, only hired to appear to be grieving. And when these paid mourners had left the girl's room, Jesus entered it, and Luke tells us what happened when he did, verses 54 and 55. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, child, arise, and her spirit returned. And she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Not only, folks, is this an incredible display of Christ's miraculous power over death, but what a tender picture of our Lord's gentle nature. As he took this young girl by the hand, and brought her back to life. I love the way Mark puts this. Mark actually tells us what Jesus said in the Aramaic language. He actually uses that. He said, Mark tells us, he took her by the hand and said, and I'm translating it for you from the Aramaic, little lamb, I say to you, arise. What a tender picture of our Lord, taking this young girl by the hand and calling her a little precious lamb. That's, that's what she was to him, a little precious lamb. And upon saying this, we read that her spirit, which had left her body at death, that's what happens at death, your spirit leaves, it now returned to her body and she immediately got up. She was alive. And Luke further reveals our Lord's gentle and thoughtful ways, his sensitivity, by telling us that after she was restored to life, Jesus gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Folks, that's how thoughtful the Lord is. He recognized she's hungry. She's hungry, bring her some food. How thoughtful to think of that detail. But that's the way he is. What an amazing savior he is. Not only is he the sovereign, omnipotent one who has the power over death, but he's so gentle, so kind, 
so thoughtful in the details as to make sure that this young girl's hunger was taken care of. And after taking this all in, taking all this in were her parents. I mean, imagine their response. We're told that, verse 56, that her parents were amazed. Obviously, joy and astonishment. We would say today they were blown away. Her daughter was dead and now she's alive. But then we read something that Jesus told the parents that seems odd. The end of verse 56, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Isn't that interesting? Obviously, this miracle could not be kept a secret. How could it be? All the people and the professional mourners, musicians, they knew that the little girl was dead and now she was alive and they would obviously be telling others. And the fact that the girl was now walking around and part of the community again, everyone would know about this. And that's exactly what happened. Matthew closes his accounts of this miracle by saying this news spread throughout all that land. So the question that we're faced with is why did Jesus tell these parents not to tell others about this remarkable miracle that he did? And the answer is we don't know for certain. We don't know for certain because the text doesn't tell us why he told them to keep silence about what he had done. All we can do is speculate But based on other times that Jesus told people not to tell others about a miracle he had performed, we can speculate that this was similar. And so from other statements in the New Testament, we know that there were times when Jesus didn't want people knowing about some miracle because it would only encourage more crowds to just satisfy their curiosity, curiosity seekers who were interested in seeing the supernatural rather than a serious commitment to following Jesus as Lord. So there were times he said, don't tell anybody about this. I don't need more curiosity seekers. So is this why Jesus told these parents not to speak of this miracle concerning their daughter? Well, we don't know. But one very plausible, I think the the most plausible explanation, though, as I said, in all fairness, the text doesn't tell us this, but I think a very plausible explanation for this command for them to keep silent is found in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. Jesus went out, now this has nothing to do directly, this is another passage, it has nothing to do directly with the healing of this girl, but I think it gives insight. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Now in these verses, the Lord's disciples were responding to his question, you're out with people, who are they saying that I am? And they were saying, well, one says that someone says you're John the Baptist, raised back to life, others, other prophets, others, the prophet Elijah. But Peter speaks up and he correctly says, you're the Christ, meaning you're the promised Messiah. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. And then Jesus warns them not to tell others that he was the Messiah. And the reason for this is spelled out in the very next verse, verse 31. Look at that. And he began to teach them. This is right after saying, don't tell people that I'm the Messiah. Don't tell them. You know it, but don't tell them. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see, though he is the Messiah, he didn't want people misunderstanding, note this, what kind of a Messiah he is. He didn't want them thinking that he was primarily a Messiah who did miracles of healing, but rather he wanted them to know of him as a suffering Messiah who would be crucified and then be raised from the dead. In other words, when the time came for him to be publicly proclaimed as Messiah, he wanted to be proclaimed as the one who came to die in order to save sinners. That's the kind of Messiah he wanted people to know about him. And that may very well be the reason he told this young girl's parents to keep silence about his miracle of restoring their daughter back to life. He didn't want people to get sidetracked about who he was because his primary ministry was to be a savior, the savior from sin, not a healer of physical bodies. And therefore, as savior, he liberates us 
from the fear of death. Not only did he raise this young girl back to life, but having died for sinners and having conquered death himself by rising from the dead, he has promised to all who place their trust in him as their savior, he has promised that they will experience eternal life and will never come into judgment when they die. The question is, is he your savior? You're in church, you're hearing a Bible message, but is he your savior from sin? If he is, then you have no reason to fear death. It's sad, but many Christians still fear death. They don't need to because Christ died for your sins and therefore you will never be punished for them. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's his promise. You can bank on it. When you die, you'll be ushered into his presence as you pass from this life into eternity. As we sang that song that got your feet a-moving. Absent from this body, present with the Lord, as the angels will escort us to heaven. But if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, then you need to understand you are in a helpless condition. Religion can't help you. Your good deeds can't help you. Baptism can't help you. You're a lost sinner. And the only one who can help you is Jesus Christ because he's ready to save you from eternal death by his grace. He died on the cross for sinners. If you will repent of your sin, which means turn from your sin, turn to him and trust him as your only hope of salvation because of his death on the cross, the Bible says you will be forgiven of your sins and you will not have to ever fear death. If you want to speak to one of our pastors about this, just see me as we close the service. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this magnificent story in your word, put here so that we might see Christ's power on display, but also that we might see his gentleness, his kindness, his thoughtfulness, his sensitivity. Lord, may we draw close to him seeing that. Too often we think of you, Lord Jesus, as just being so hard and harsh. And yes, you can be severe when it comes to sin, but you are also at the same time so loving and kind and tender. And may that flood our minds. May we embrace that and draw near to you. You are a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our very infirmities. So Lord, we pray that you'll help us. We pray that you'll help us to see you for who you are and to love you for who you are. And we pray that you'll help us to reflect the same kind of tenderness and thoughtfulness and sensitivity and graciousness, especially towards young children, your little lambs that you have, the same attitude. Help us to be loving like that. And Lord, we pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. May they see their hopelessness apart from you. May they come running to you for salvation. Only you can work in their hearts. Only you can open their hearts and minds to the gospel, to the truth about you. But we ask you to do that, to bring glory to yourself. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.